Hi everyone, welcome to another episode on the FESTA show. So today I had with me Brad, who's a first year neuroscience PhD student at the University of Southampton. He's currently studying the mechanisms of aging, with a specific focus on the cytoskeleton and the healthy immune system using drosophilia as a model. This leading on from an integrated master's degree in neuroscience where he researched methods of tau spread in vivo. We spoke things all neuroscience, with a specific interest in aging, and we also discussed Alzheimer's and other brain diseases. So let's get straight into it. All right, we are live. Another episode on the Festa show. I think this is number nine or ten. But uh, yeah, let's get straight in. So today I have with me is Brad. How are we doing, Brad? Yeah, not too bad. Yourself? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. You know, thanks for having me on. Yeah. But, um, looking forward to getting into this one. It should, should be a good one. Just starting off, do you want to just tell the listeners what you're studying and uh, what university? Yeah, sure. So um, I've got a master's degree in neuroscience. Um, and I suppose my PhD is still strictly within neuroscience as well. So I'm looking at neuronal aging but from the perspective of normal aging so i'm looking completely in the absence of disease because that's where most of the research on neurons is coming from it's, it's what's happening to them when we've got you know dementia alzheimer's parkinson's whatever so I, i'm coming from that that perspective of what's happening before we're getting these diseases and is there sort of an age related um it, it, it is this is decline in neuronal health mm-hmm. happening in healthy aging or is it not? And I'm doing this at the University of Southampton, same place that I did my master's degree as well. Same place for the entire sort of eight or nine years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, love that. Because uh, just for the listeners to know, you've done an integrated master's, didn't you? So you've done undergrad. Yeah, yeah. So I, I had sort of slightly less research time in my master's year, but because of COVID, everybody had the same amount of time anyway because all the emerald students ended up sort of getting kicked out of the lab oh no so i suppose i i managed to get all of my lab work done before covid hit yeah what i had to do when i went home and when we were in isolation was to just write write my paper up so it didn't affect me too much actually yeah i just realized because oh because yeah you were still doing your masters this this time last year yeah, yeah, it was. So when the COVID hit, like what, February time? Yeah. February, fe- March. So I was just sort of coming towards the end of my time in the lab. So I need to sort of, yeah, with the integrated masters, you're doing like six or seven months in the lab as opposed to like, you know, the full, the full year. But I think, I think with the integrated, you do a lot more modular work than what you would do if you were doing just an MRES. I'm not, I'm not sure because I never did, did the MRES myself, but yeah. I think MRES is just kind of a research taught master. Uh, sorry, MRES is a research-based kind of master's where it's, it's like a mini PhD. Yeah, yeah that's, that's sort of the impression I got from it as well. Um, but I mean, the, the integrated master's still got me onto a PhD course. So it worked yeah. out right in the end. Yeah, well, I, I, I done a taught master's as well. So after a degree, done a taught master's. So I still kept it quite broad. And then PhD is where I've started to really specialize. But 
how have you found doing an integrated masters like in terms of just going straight from degree to masters like how was that um, yeah I, th- I thought it was all right i think the way that they the step up from like your your final bachelor's year like the third year mm-hmm. to the masters was i reckon it was probably easier than going from a bachelor's to an emirates because because you're not that sort of lab-based element, although it's really important and it's worth like 70% of a year, it's not like the only thing that you're doing, like when you're doing a, a research-led master's. So I think it was um, less of a sort of learning curve like with what the MRES is. And it, it helps with the integrated as well because you're at the same uni, you know all the, you know the lecturers, you know the research there. So it's a little bit easier to sort of make that step up, I think. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I always like to ask the people I come on about this because there's a, there's two ways, isn't it? You can either keep switching university, you know, you've got a degree, you move on, master's. But in your case, like you said, you've, you've already done the four years and now you're going to do another three or four years PhD. What, what are the main advantages you have found then staying at the same university, do you think? Um, so for a bigger, big advantage for me in terms of sort of staying at the same place for my PhD, I think, so I'm working with my, with the same PI as I worked with for my masters. So I already knew the way that they worked. They already knew the way that I worked. So I think it, we sort of completely missed out that like first six month period where you're trying to sort of, cause you need to have a good relationship with your PI as well. Right. Yeah, I think that's a big part of the PhD and it's a big part of the first couple of months. And it was easier for me because I already knew my PI for a year. And also I knew everyone else in the lab. So of course oh, it's not wow. just me in the lab. So I already had sort of made friendships over my masters. So when I started my PhD, I wasn't being thrown into a completely different environment with different people. And I think especially because of COVID that's benefited me even more because all these people have been going on to PhDs at brand new unis they're not even getting the opportunity to meet the other people in their labs. Yeah, that's true. Whereas, you know, I already knew. So if I need some, if I need to ask someone for help, I already know them and I could just drop them a message. Whereas if I hadn't met them already, I think I'd probably think twice about asking for help every two minutes because <laughs> you haven't formed that relationship. Have you like what, what you, what you would have done. Yeah, I agree. Even with the, the PIs as well, if you're just starting a PhD during this pandemic, it is going to be hard, especially I'm assuming some people probably haven't even met their supervisors face to face yet. I've I've literally spoken to someone the other day and they said that they haven't actually met their PI. Like they haven't had the opportunity to do that. And I'm just, I'm just thinking like a lot of the work that I've started off with is similar to what I did in my master's, like the technique wise. So I haven't had to teach myself too much, Mm -hmm. but it's all these new PhDs who have been thrown into the lab. They haven't got the help of their PI or a postdoc or another PhD in the lab because you can't with social distancing. I've just, how much are those people struggling when they're having to teach themselves these techniques and they've got no sort of, you know, you can drop an email and ask for help, but it's not the same, is it? No, it's difficult. I, I really feel for people who have just switched universities, just started, you know, as you said, new environment, this is very difficult, but, and that's, one of the advantages, as you said, at staying at the university, but it made sense in your position because you've just moved on from the masters, but it's a similar project. Is that, is it adding on or 
so I mean, it's this, I'm working on Drosophila again. Um, so the model organism is the same, which makes which is a big benefit because I haven't got to learn that. Um, but the actual the science that I'm I'm researching is is quite a bit different. Um, but it just so happens that we were sort of at the minute we're we're tagging on something I was developing in the masters, and then we're just changing it into the context of of what I'm researching now. Um, so, I, I mean, that's probably helped me over the first couple of months as well, because even the science is kind of similar just for the first couple of months. Yeah. When you were studying the masters then, was it pretty straightforward for you in, in relation to wanting to study a PhD? Yeah, I mean, I, I probably went through the first three years absolutely adamant I wasn't going to do a PhD. Uh, adamant, I didn't want, I'm pretty sure I probably said I didn't want to stay in science, to be honest. And I wasn't actually a very good student at all, especially in my first two years. Um, but I think it was, the, it was the master's year itself, which is what made me want to do a PhD. Because I think the sort of research that you do in your masters is completely different to anything that you've done before even with like so i did sort of advanced project in 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 my third year which i think a lot of people do and that was like six to eight weeks and then we wrote up like a mini dissertation but that's nothing like what actual research is like so i think it's really hard to know especially like if as undergrads are listening it's pretty hard to know if you actually want to do a phd until you get to that masters which is why, which is why I think it is. I know a lot of people say if you get the opportunity to move straight to a PhD from a bachelor's, you should take it. But I think that can be risky sometimes because you haven't had that sort of one-year buffer of the masters where you can work out if you actually want to do it or not. Mm. Yeah, I completely agree. I think, like for me personally, yeah, I think I knew I definitely wanted to do a PhD during undergrad. But as you said, that masters year you really get to develop more skills and you, you get more of an insight of what it could potentially be like as a PhD student. And I think it depends on the university as well, because we were, I was quite fortunate with Gloucester university when it came to the undergrad uh, dissertation, we had quite a lot of flexibility with the type of project we wanted to do the research. We kind of developed it. Whereas I've heard with some different universities, it, it can be a lot of uh, the, le- the lecturer or the PI itself is leading it, which I do agree to a certain extent because as undergrads, you don't fully understand the area. So it's good to have that. But at the same time, as you said, you, you do really need to, when you have your own project and it's your idea, you really get to develop them skills that you would only get from a PhD. Yeah, well, I, f- I think that that's the issue with like what you said with the third year projects is if it's being led by the PI and it's sort of like a group project almost you're not thinking for yourself you're sort of just going through the motions and you're you're maybe learning a few techniques which is which is pretty good but you're not you're not coming up with problems and thinking how can I get around this or fix it which is why I which why I think I didn't consider a PhD until my master's year because it was at that point I realized oh wait this is pretty cool you're basically like trying to diagnose things 24 seven and work out what's going wrong. And I think that's what interests me mm-hmm. is the sort of using your own head to try and figure things out and you're not being baby fed everything. So I, yeah. think, I think that that's personally why it took so long for me to realize that I wanted to, wanted to do a PhD. I didn't really, 
I didn't know what proper research was actually made from. Yeah, I think that's really reassuring for everyone to hear as well, especially if someone's listening there in undergrad and they kind of 50-50% on whether they want to they want to do research. So I think that's you've covered some really good stuff there. So hopefully that will definitely help people out. With the PhD then, how did it did it just you had this conversation with the PI and was like, okay, I want to study a PhD or was there one being offered and then you applied for that? Yeah, so it was it was probably around I think it happened around Christmas and I, I'd sort of decided then, yeah, you know, I'm definitely going for a for a PhD. But I just got back from a um you, uh, if you know the Crick Institute in London, UCL. Like, oh yeah. I just got back from a conference there. Oh uh, it's like after that I was like, oh no, you know, this is sick. I want to do this from from now on. Yeah. Um and it was almost like that night I went back and looked at PhDs and I started to apply for them. Mm-hmm. So I was I was going through the emotion of sort of applying for a few PhDs and looking at different PIs at different unis. Mm-hmm. And because of that, my current PI knew that I was looking for one. And she just sort of, I can't, I can't remember, she probably just said after a meeting, like, oh, I've got funding for you. Um, wow. Do you apply for it? And I was like, oh, well, that's kind of like pretty good, you know. <laughs> it's like it's coming to you instead of you having to to search for it um what a feeling so i said yeah let's like have a look at the project and everything and i I sat down with with my pi and my secondary um they talked through it and i was like yeah this is brilliant it's exactly what the sort of project i wanted to do anyway so i think it just i got pretty lucky because a couple of things fell into place at the right time and i know it's quite hard for that to happen Mm -hmm. um so I, i still interviewed for it and everything but I think I was always, always had a big advantage coming from the uni, knowing the uh, knowing the model organism already, and knowing a bit of the science. So, yeah, I don't know. It, it just I know it's not like with a lot of people that where they've applied to like twenty projects and they've got that last one. And I know that happens with with most people. I think I just got really lucky, to be honest. So like, if you're applying to one, don't expect to, <laughs> expect to happen what happened to me because. It just, just yeah, like I said, pure luck. I think. Yeah, I think it's right place, right time, and it's just finding the right one that suits you, isn't it? Like you said, you were just fortunate enough. The supervisor managed to get some funding. You already knew using the model already, so it was kind of just well, perfect for the role. Yeah, like I, at, at that time, I had I was starting to get sort of offers through from other places, and things were moving. But as soon as I got this one, I thought. It's, it's exactly the sort of area I want to research. It's been offered to me already. It's just accept it. And I'm, I'm glad that I did because I probably saved myself months and months of stress. Yeah. Waiting for, for offers or interview offers to come back and pulling my hair out because I'm not getting offered anything. Yeah. And are you, where, where are you living now as well? You're still living in Southampton? Um, Sort of, sort of, just above Southampton, a uh, place called Winchester. So I've, I've lived in Southampton for four years. All of my friends and everything have left from undergrad. Um, yeah. So we thought we'd move out out of the city to somewhere a bit quieter. So we're basically <laughs> in the middle of the countryside right now. But it's brilliant because you know I come back from a stressful day, and it's just dead quiet. Like no cars, no nothing, no police sirens. And I go outside at night, and there's no, there's no um light pollution so i can actually see, like sort of see the stars here oh so wow pretty cool it's something i never thought about before 
maybe it's because I'm getting old, but I get excited <laughs> when I go outside and I can see the stars. Yeah, I remember when uh, when I was in my masters and like a little old when I was like, oh my gosh, there's a little like two minutes. <laughs> That's the thing when we're getting old, you know, this is the thing we get excited about, like notion as well. It's like, oh my gosh, a new organising. Yeah, yeah, it's brilliant, isn't it? <laughs> it's what it's like, Brad. This is this is PhD life, isn't it? We get excited. <laughs> Simple things, isn't it? Cool. So let's just let's get into the project then. Let's get into the main bit. Do you want to just, I know you've already covered just slightly what your project is, but I don't know if you want to just go into a bit more detail. Yeah. And I think some people might not know what dysophilia is. So I don't know if you want to just cap that quickly. Yes. Yeah, so Drosophila are essentially fruit flies. So they're the tiny little flies that you've probably seen before. Um, but they're also a really useful model organism. Um, so I suppose I'll just go through the benefits of using them. Um, I think the main benefit is you get a really high throughput data stream. So instead of getting like an N of five for, for each sample or whatever, you can, you can easily, you know, get like an N of 50 or N of a hundred because they're so easy to cultivate. So we literally just keep them in these little food vials. If anybody follows me on, on Instagram, you'll see that I've got videos of these and it's literally just a, a plastic vial with some food at the bottom and we can keep like 50, 50 to a hundred flies in there um, with them being sort of fairly healthy. Um, and then sort of keeping them going is really easy. So you literally just flipping them into new food and then their mating process, it takes about 10 days from mating for new flies to, to pop out to a close. Mm. So that means that you can, you can, you can just get loads of flies out really quickly and you can sort of start from a small stock number and you can have like trays and trays of the same genotype and that the, the sort of the genetic manipulation is another big, big advantage of using them. Mm -hmm. So there's something called the GAL4 UAS system. And it's literally just this genetic system that enables us to express any protein we want in specific tissues. So because of that, especially for the sort of work that I do, it's really easy to think, no, I want to, I want to express tau, human tau. Yeah. I want to express that in a certain part of the brain. Well, I can order these flies with the genetic from, from like Canada or like Vancouver or whatever. Um, they'll turn up in three weeks time. And there we go. I've got my, I've got my flies with the genetics that I want. Awesome. What we tend to do is we'll take, um, take two adults. So we'll take a male and a female um, and they'll hold different genetics. When you make them together, their progeny, a majority of them will have the genetics that you want. So it's like the fusing of those two together. Um, and I'm trying to think of anything else that's beneficial. I think it was the actual model itself as well especially from my point of view, when I'm looking at the brain, it's remarkably similar to what ours are. Um, you know, the, the, the neuronal connections that the anatomy of the neurons is exactly the same, uh, basically. Um, and then they have segregated areas of the brain that deal with different things. So you've got areas that deal with, with, their, with optics. You've got areas that deal with, um, uh, like the glomeruli in the middle. Um, You've got higher order brain regions that will sort of input more complicated information. So it's, you know, even though it's not exactly the same as how our brains are formed, it's pretty mm. similar. So if you want to model human disease in it, it's a pretty good place to start, especially if you're looking at it from a sort of cell, cell level, like a neuron, your, mm. 
your base is, you know, it's no different to, to looking at a neuron and a human. It's just the fact that we can manipulate this and do whatever we want to it. Yeah. Um, and uh, I suppose the last thing, which is good for my project is they have a short life cycle. So you, they're probably only going to live up to sort of 60 days old. So when you're looking at aging, like I am, well, instead of, say, for example, if you're using rodents, you might want to age them up to like 28 months or above. That's an entire PhD cycle almost, and just one data set from that. <laughs> so with mine, I can, I can go for an entire life cycle, like in a couple of months, if that, which is, which is good. Yeah, because with rodents, what is it, like two years for mice, I think, isn't it? So, but with yours then, is there an issue that you might miss the window? Because, because it's so short, um, or is it not too bad? Yeah, no, but no, you are right with that. I think that's just a case of um, trial and error. Mm. So like a lot of the stuff, the stuff that I'm doing at the minute, I'm looking at uh, bi-weekly intervals. Okay. So as I find that like, I'm, I do like a zero day time point, a 14 day and then like a 28 day. If I find that like between 14 and 28 days, there's like a substantial difference in something. Well, I know I just need to pick apart that, that gap in between and just interrogate that timeline. Um, so you're right, like you can easily miss a window because it happens so quickly. But yeah. because it's so easy to set them back up again and age them, it means you can just you can just run the experiment again and there's no bother really. And because they don't actually take much maintenance, you don't really have to look after them like you do with rodents. It's it's just easy to run stuff in the background. It's like I feel like it's half the time I'm not even doing science because I'm just going in flipping a few fly vials and then leaving and i'm like what am i doing but it's just because they're that easy to maintain that's so good yes i still can't get over it. even when we were speaking last week just off recording when you were saying about dissecting them yeah <laughs> like that just blows my mind because i've seen one of my friends he's doing neuroscience as well but he's uh he's doing schizophrenia in a in a mouse model but their brain is not too bad of a size. It's yeah. small, but the these these flies you're using, they're tiny. They're tiny, aren't they? Yeah. So the, the heads themselves are like, I think it's the size of a poppy seed. So I'm like trying, if anyone doesn't know what poppy seed is, I'm trying to think. Like if you go to the supermarket and you buy some like fancy burger buns with the little black seeds on them, that's the size of a poppy seed. Um, and then the brain itself, of course, is quite a bit smaller than the head mm-hmm. that sits within it. So we have to dissect them through microscope. Um, we basically just use like surgical grade tweezers, nothing special. Um, and it's just a case of learning how to do it. So it probably took me three months to be able to get them out flawlessly at the start of my master's. But it's all, once you once you get it, it sticks. It's like a mo- it's just a motor skill, really. It's not you don't have to be intelligent to dissect one. It's just yeah. practice. It's like any sport or whatever. I, I, I don't know. Like, I can't think of any sports that use like super fine motor control like that. I don't know, dance no. or something maybe. <laughs> but it's just like, it's just, rep- it's just repetition. And then you get it after. Because you're not used to using your fingers with that fine motor control like that all the time. I, I can't think of an example of what you would do day to day where you're, no, you're moving your fingers at. So I think it's just a case of getting used to that. Yeah. It's, it's no different to other techniques people use with that sort of fine level of control it just mm. looks cool yeah no it definitely does 
And even with the, you were saying with the genetic modification, so you just order a certain amount uh, from Canada, for example, as you said, and then you just grow them and then they'll just constantly, will they always have that genetic, uh, say the genomic features you want, is it? Yeah, so um, so we just order them in. For, there's a big, if anyone wants to fly, I know Bloomington is just a big store mm. of, um, of fly stocks or we, with our partner labs, we've got labs that will make the genetics for us, like the specific ones that we need. So they'll just send over like three or four vials. Um, by the time they've, they've got here and they've gone through customs, all the adults are dead, but they, would have, mate, they would have mated and um, laid eggs in that time. And then that progeny will be starting to come through. So you're sort of getting the offspring. And then all you do after that is if you want to bulk up a stock, you just, every other day, you flip them into new food they'll mate, lay eggs in that new food and then you flip it on. So if like one set of um, parents, you can flip them through like 10 vials of food and each of those files is now seeded. So you, from one vial, you've got 10 and then you can just keep on flipping through the vials like that. And they should, the only reasons you're not going to be holding that genetics anymore is one, if you get a contamination. So you've got a fly with a separate genotype has somehow got into that vial and started mating obviously that's then going to be spreading his or her genotype throughout that vial and it's going to propagate through it but we've got they've got a nifty trick that we can do to spot this right. so they're called this balances or markers so um, a big one is eye color so they'll when you've put a certain gene in it will change the eye color of the fly from like white to red or you can have green eyes yellow eyes and what we can do is change just other sort of phenotypic things. So like the shape of the wings, how many sort of like hairs it has on the back of its back of its head. Um, so, you know, like if it has these markers or it doesn't, it does or doesn't have the gene as well, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So like no, no. a common one is, is one called curlio. So it's literally the wings sort of curl up a little bit. They're not straight like what they are normally. So if I see a fly with that curlio, I know that it's probably um heterozygous for the gene that we want so it's probably got one copy of one one alley or the gene we want and the other alley or without it and then within that vial if i see them with straight wings i know they're probably homozygous for the the gene that i want mm. um, and that's yeah it's just sort of a way and i think there, there are deeper meanings for them doing that not just for that i think it it makes the chances of there being basically if you put these balances in it means that if there's like a crossover event um, you won't end up with a mutation within the stock. That's right. the only way I can I can describe it. So it stops that from happening as well. Um, so yeah, there's a couple of different couple of different things with that. Um, but I, I think it's simple, but it's, it's elegant and it works. Um, so so it's, it's nothing too like hard to get your head around. But you can do so much from it. Mm, I just can't get over the how how you'd even know this. If there was just the one fly, you were saying with the genetic modification, he's, he's got red eyes, for example, or green eyes. How would you identify that? Because what do you say? There's about 50 or 60 flies, is there, per? Yeah, yeah. So like, I'd say you wouldn't want to push it over that. Um, in a normal food vial, we'll, we'll have like max 50. Right. If you want it to be really healthy, probably like 20, 30. Um, okay. And then if you want to like really bulk them up, you can stick them in big glass like beakers and you can have like hundreds in them yeah this this kind of science really it's not something i'm really 
too much got most knowledge on but it interests me so much it's it's just crazy the whole the whole area it fascinates me so much yeah yeah it's, it's quite cool um <laughs> but then that's the same way i look at sort of people who are using these more sort of like hardcore biochemical techniques and and cell culture i look at that and i think oh do you know what? i'd quite like to have my hand at that it's yeah. probably like grass is greener on the other side people looking at other different models and techniques and thinking oh i want to be doing that instead yeah yeah def- i'd love to i've done humans done uh, uh cells so i'd love to do animals at some point yeah. but okay so with with your flies then one of the things i really like what you said to me last week is or at the moment at least the with the aging process that you're looking at you're saying a lot of people who are studying a phd or doing research in this area they're they're looking at the aging process in an alzheimer's models or um there's dementia them kind of things but with your one you actually just want to explore the aging process in itself yeah exactly um so I, th- I think I said this to you the, the other day, um, but the analogy I like to use is when you're looking at dementia or sort of any disease for that, for that fact, you're looking at the plane after it's crashed and there's just, you know, a massive crash wreck bomb site and you can't see anything. Um, but what I'm doing is I'm sort of looking at the black box of that situation and I'm trying to work out what's happening on the way to that, to that sort of crash. So we know that Alzheimer's is an age-related disease, but is there something that's happening in, in normal aging that is leading up to that, to the mechanisms that cause that? Um, and is there something we can do to, to prolong it or stop it? And I, I think it's just, it's important research that hasn't been done. And you'll see a lot of the literature refers back to it. And it's, and it's like, well, we predicted normal aging, this is what happens, and this could be useful, but no one's done work on it yet. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, step out of the way, I'm coming. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying, I, trying to do that. I want to know that because I've got my personal opinions based on what I think there's a lack of literature. But as a neuroscientist yourself, why do you think there is such a lack of literature on aging? Um, I think it's, the big thing is probably funding because let's be honest, it's easy to get funding for big diseases especially and within neuroscience that disease is alzheimer's um i think if you if you go with a proposal for funding on a on an alzheimer's related project you're much more likely to get funding than what you would for normal aging because alzheimer's is the thing that is killing um however many million people a year so i think that's probably the big and then maybe another part is that people think that aging is just alzheimer's but a slower rate so that by cracking the code with alzheimer's you would be cracking the code with age-related deficits as well mm-hmm. but everyone i speak to about this is like oh cool so you're doing like that's important work and i'm thinking yeah so if you're thinking that why is that where there are not more people doing this as well why is it such a rare occurrence for it to happen but like i said it sort of just gives me probably a bit more motivation to work when i'm seeing stuff like that but yeah would you not say aging is a disease in itself i think i think aging is a disease in itself i'm not convinced whether it is like a lot of people say aging is just alzheimer's but we haven't hit that like critical point yet Mm. we haven't you know it's just developing slower than some people 
So I, I think I think it is a separate disease, just whether that whether the disease is the same as dementia as well, I don't know. But I'm hoping maybe that's sort of the what this work can start to start to build towards is trying to put those links between age-related diseases and aging itself. When you look at the literature, a lot of things happen in aging that do happen in disease, but at a much lower scale. So maybe that maybe that is pointing towards it being Alzheimer's or dementia, but it's just happening so slow that people are, are dying of other causes before they're getting it. I think that's quite a popular opinion. Ah, right. Okay, I see what you mean. That's interesting. Yeah. So, so, so like, like with the with the tau spread or amyloid amyloid plaque pathogenesis, maybe it's just that um, it's happening in everybody, but it just happens for some reason in certain individuals. It just seems to happen so much quicker, and that's why we get Alzheimer's. But I'm not saying that is the case, but I think that's a popular theory towards it. Yeah, that does. That would make sense because that's hard, isn't it? Aging will happen no matter what. But I guess the pace of what aging is going at, that can be differentiated. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's like... And then maybe in some people, there, there's some genetic link between your aging process just happening so much faster. But then that, that sort of makes me think, why is that aging process selective towards neurons as well? Just or just towards neurons um, and not to the rest, the other cells in the body. But yeah, I, d I don't know. I think it's a cool theory. Yeah. But but like you said, I, I d aging is a disease. It's just whether it's its own entity or or if it just another disease, but it held back quite a bit. Yeah. You you said something there that was just sparkled something in my brain. Is so there, is there a difference then between aging in certain cells in comparison with neurons? Or um. Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, yeah. Hmm. What? Well, you you do get aging in in other cells as well. Mm -hmm. Just you know, like cells making up like the muscular musculoskeletal system age. Um, your you know cells within the cardiac system age. So I suppose it is is a thing that happens across the entire system. I do think neurons probably age differently just because they're so complex. Mm -hmm. they're, they're a lot more complex than other cells that we have in the body. So I think when things go wrong, that aging is, a, is much more apparent and they're much harder to replace than, than other typical cells that you have. Right. That makes sense, yeah. Yeah, I don't, there's so many questions I want to ask for this, but I hope they're not too much bro science-y. Um, <laughs> so yeah I do apologize in advance but then do you personally believe at some point with neuroscience that we can slow the aging process completely or do you think we need to we need really need to define what aging is first before even I do, I, I, what you said last definitely we need to define what aging is because you could probably tell through the past couple of questions I'm sort of pointing towards things I think but basically we, we don't have an idea of what aging is so I think you'd be hard-pressed to find an actual scientific definition for the aging process, mm -hmm. other than it's just what happens to the body and the cells over a period of time. But like mechanically, biochemically, what is happening? I think we need to define that. But I don't see any reason why we couldn't, we couldn't slow down aging. That is an outcome of the PhD that we had down from day one with me, was 
look, interrogate some of these mechanisms that are occurring during aging and then trying to genetically or pharmacologically slow them down or stop it. So that is something I will hopefully will be directly looking at myself. And then, so with your part at the moment, then uh, just for the listeners to know, you're looking at the aging process, and then there must be certain markers you're looking at as part of this. Yeah. So we had to decide at the start. I mean, you could basically look at any aspect of 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 neurons, or or sort of like neuroimmune cells or the biochemistry. You could look at anything, and if you were going to if you're going to do that, you would be you'd spend your entire career just having a look at small things. So what we decided on looking at was the cytoskeleton in part. Also, so like I'm not sure how much you know about the cytoskeleton, but it, we have it in every we have cytoskeletons in every single cell. But the cytoskeleton that encompasses the neurons is, is quite a bit different. And it has to be for, for good reasons. Um, and when you're thinking mainly about like what they physically do, they're a lot more active than other cells. So what I'm looking at more specifically is the cytoskeleton. What happens to like the microtubules, um, the neurofilaments with age. Um, and that's, that has nice tieovers with disease as well, because in Alzheimer's, what the, sort of the main protein that the field is looking at right now is tau, as, as well as amyloid tau itself is a microtubule binding protein and we know that a lot happens to tau with aging and within alzheimer's so i think it's important to look at the microtubules which is what tau binds to in normal aging to see if anything's happening there mm. so can you i'm i'm not too switched on with tau i know about amyloid plaque just because i know that's related to Alzheimer's is in an act kind of builds up, it leaves fatty deposits in the vasculature. That's the reason why I know about that. Because uh, isn't I read a paper about omega 3 and 6 being relate being able to reduce it? I don't know if you've maybe, yeah, I'll have, um, have to send you that. One of the things people look at a lot is the APOE gene. Um, yes, and with uh, with amyloid, you have cleavage of this this APP protein and I know that that has crossovers with cholesterol so right. that might be where that's coming from because I, I don't know if like omega freeze and stuff like that yeah no alter your cholesterol so yeah maybe there is some some stuff behind that yeah that would, that would be cool I mean especially when you're looking actually something something good I could say about that is when you look at Alzheimer's Japan is one of the even though they've got one of the oldest populations they have like the lowest rates of Alzheimer's and when you look at their diet, what do they eat? Well, loads of fresh fish full of omega-3s and fatty acids and just, other, you know, they don't eat junk food. So maybe, you know, maybe there is something there. <laughs> that's actually quite cool. Yeah, I'll send you that paper. But that's really good to, that's interesting to hear about the Japan as well. As I said, I'm, in, I'm always interested in lifestyle interventions uh, as well as drugs as well, just to see the, what effect they can have on the human body. But I always... I try to be a bit more careful now just because there is a lot of promising uh, studies coming out in cell models, such as like lifestyle interventions or nutrition interventions that related to aging, cardiovascular disease. But I know I have to be very careful because sometimes the transfer to humans isn't always. I think um, especially, especially, you're definitely right at that, especially with um, 
with lifestyle because it's such a human specific thing. Yeah. And I, I think the things that the different things that we do that make up our lifestyle, whether that's like diet, exercise, stress, I think that's so specific to the human system and the entire human system. It's quite hard to translate that back over. Yeah. So I think you can, you can look at like, what does increasing this vitamin in my diet do to the cell? Yeah. That's going to tell you something, but I don't think it's going to tell you how that's going to alter something in a human. But yeah, yeah I, I, I agree with the lifestyle intervention as being something big with stopping disease. I think it's probably, I think it's something we should be doing more research towards as well. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's enough of it in the case of Alzheimer's or aging. That's my personal opinion is that we should tackle everything with intervention before we're looking at therapeutics or drug, drug therapeutics. Because when you're looking at dementia and Alzheimer's demographically and sort of economically across the world, these populations which have like quote unquote better lifestyles have lower cases. So there's, there's definitely something there. There's even a big link between gum disease and Alzheimer's, which is another lifestyle right. thing. And that's actually something that's in the last sort of four or five years has come up as quite prominent. And there's quite a lot of research going towards that. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's definitely something behind those lifestyle interventions and stopping disease. Yeah, it is crazy when you think about it. You think like, you just exercise well, have a good diet, keeping happy as well. I've seen, I've seen a yeah. few studies. I read one two weeks ago, and it was to do with mice and loneliness. And I don't know what you think about them studies, but I've I seen it. it was with a mouse, and they stressed the mother out like they, they didn't have sheets to keep the, the babies warm, and uh, they were like restricted of food and... Like the the mouse was really like stressed and in in the control, it had like food and it had all the cover and stuff. And I can't remember what the proteins were, but just some of like the ones related to dementia it really spiked that. And I was like, wow. I, I think I think that's cool. Um, I mean, because you can stimulate the stress response in mice pretty easily. Mm. And yeah, maybe there is a pretty big link between like cortisol levels and, and Alzheimer's. Cause I think when you're talking about lifestyle, that's something that people overlook. They go straight towards um, diet and, and exercise, but yeah. they forget that like stress and anxiety and these sort of like almost more like mental health related things can have just as big an impact on your physical health, if not maybe more than what your diet can. So that, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Have you, have you come across any decent studies related? Because would you be able to do that with the flies? The, yeah. the psychological, you can, can you? Oh, wow. Yeah. I've, I've never done it myself, but you can, you can cause stress responses in them. So you can use um, the big one that they use is different odors. So you, you feed through an odor that they don't like, and that's supposed to make them stressed out. I don't know. Um, uh, and you can probably do, you probably do other things where you're like leading them into different chambers and stuff. I don't know, but yeah, you, you can definitely elicit a stress response in Drosophila. Gosh, would that be something you'd ever like to do? Or is it more, well, for you personally, I know you're saying the three years of the PhD is uh, main related with this and the tie, but after it, what would you like to do? Would you rather go down 
more of like a lifestyle intervention or more of the drugs? Um, so I would prefer to do lifestyle intervention, but I reckon you're probably going to be pushing, pushing the limits of the model with that. Right. I think you can probably interrogate genetic and drug intervention a lot better in the Drosophila than what you could with the lifestyle. Even though I think it's cool, I think that stuff probably is probably better in, in mice and rodent models. So yeah, I, I think that might be a limit limit of it because there's only so close, so much you can push mm. sort of an, an in, insect model towards human behavior. Ah, oh, okay, that makes sense. So rodents are probably more favorable for the the lifestyle intervention. I don't know, maybe looking at a diet strategy. Yeah, I reckon so, yeah. Whereas dystrophilia is more related to the genetic modifications or if you... Yeah, that, that's, the, that's how I put it. I, I'm not too clued up on how like nutrition affects Drosophila as well. Right. Because we feed them like very specific diet. I'm not sure if you took them off of that, whether, whether they would go, um, whether they go mental or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we can put drugs through the food. But, so that's quite a, a useful that's thing cool. that we can do. So instead, like, I think you can do that with rodent, rodents as well, can't you? You can feed them like drug-laced food. Okay. Um, but it works really well in, in Drosophila. So I think that's, that's something I will be doing. I, one of the things I'd like to do is, is to use drugs to rescue these cytoskeletal structures. So like um, drugs that sort of maybe solidify the connections of tau to the microtubules to keep it more, more solid over a longer range of time. And then seeing whether that um, increases length of life or like not even necessarily increases length of life. I think with this, with this aging, if we could make the cells just work better or the neurons just work better for the rest of their life, then you're still improving the quality of life over the same time period, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So like there's almost no point in improving length of life if it's going to be, you know, crappy, uh, yeah no that makes sense in, in the case of humans it's there's no point like improving giving an alzheimer's patient another five years because that five years is going to be hell for them and their family it might be better to to look at stuff that can make them behave normally and feel good for what they have left it's kind of like a maybe a morbid thing to think about but i think that probably is the best thing for us to look at first sort of rescuing that disease phenotype, not necessarily increasing length of life. Uh, I agree with that just because, as you said, without sounding horrible here, but if someone did have Alzheimer's or dementia, it wouldn't really be fair on them or the family to just prolong their life in that period, would it? It'd be more... It's the absolute worst thing to do, I think. Like, if you've ever known someone who's, who's had Alzheimer's, it's like, it's a really, really horrible disease. And I know probably heart disease and cancer sort of steal the limelight. Uh, but if you're thinking about it like that, when you're talking about disease, people like oh, cancer, heart disease, but Alzheimer's kills just as many people, but it completely takes your sense of self away. So if you see an Alzheimer's patient and you just look into their eyes, you're not, you're not even sure they're like, they're there in their body. It's a really hard thing to describe. But it is like they're they're sat there, but they're not. 
they're not mentally or they're not physically there. It's just there. It's just like a skeleton. So it's, it's the, it's not just the number of people that it kills the way that it kills them and the stress that it put on families and on the NHS and on the economy is, is ridiculous, which is, which is why we need to push towards more funding into the area and then perhaps start to branch out to things like what I'm doing, where I'm trying to look at age and age related diseases, but from a different aspect, because we've got so many people working on strictly just Alzheimer's what's happening when they've got Alzheimer's. Mm. Maybe we need to start to expand our thinking because we've been looking at Alzheimer's for a long time now, you know, um, it was sort of spotted in the early 1900s and we're no closer to a therapy over a hundred years later. Like you look at cancer, we can treat a lot of cancer right now. We can, we can intervene with heart disease, but with Alzheimer's, there's absolutely nothing we can do. Like the drugs that we have out right, right now for it, they don't do anything. No. And, and perhaps the best thing we have right now is early life lifestyle intervention, like what you said, yeah. is hoping that people live healthier lives, which definitely isn't happening right now. Like <laughs> diets and stress levels have probably never been worse. And then keeping people like cognitively activated later on in their life, probably something that we could do. Because I think it's, it's easy for, and this might be why you see such high cases in, in like care homes and everything. Because they might not necessarily be getting that sort of same mental stimulation as what they would do otherwise. But yeah, there, I mean, there's a lot of different areas that we can look at when, when we're talking about Alzheimer's. Yeah. Like that, that lifestyle intervention, I think, is pretty key. Definitely. For the earlier parts, as you say, and so you can have less risk of it as you're aging. It's crazy. With, with the the cognitive stuff now I'm, only, I'm getting a little bit confused but I'm sure you can answer this because with aging within the brain for example you say and that's that would induce a stress response yeah and then yeah, that's where so, so you're, you're seeing like increased like apoptosis and cell senescence right. with age and I think a lot of that is, is, is linked to a stress response okay but then Actually, so the cognitive uh, function, I don't know, saying that we're, we're doing brain tests on them every week where they're, I don't know, you can literally do some active recall, for example. They, they read a book and then they need to recite their week later. Does that not, at some extent, stress the brain too much for them? or? Um, I, I don't think so. I don't know. I don't know why it would. I think the whole premise behind doing that is you're reinforcing LTP. And that, that, long, that potentiation between the synapses, which is something that immediately breaks down with aging. Mm-hmm. So like if I'm right and the cytoskeleton does degrade over time for our age, what that's going to relate to is the synapses are also going to break down, which means that you're losing that, that potentiation between synapses. And that's why I think even in the absence of like a clinically diagnosed alzheimer's when you get older you do just your memory just gets worse so there must be something happening there which is interrupting the potentiation because that's all memory is right it's just potentiation between two synapses and then you just multiply that by a million a billion and that's what memory is so like 
yeah, at the at the core of it, there's there's definitely something going wrong in mm-hmm. the neurons because that's the only way that these memories could be your memory or your cognition could be getting worse with age. But like I think circling back to what you said, the question was, um, yeah, I think if you if you did stuff like active recall, mm-hmm. you would see an increase in cognitive ability over time because you're starting to to help that LTP back along to get going. I know a lot of people say that you, you can't form new skills or like new networks with age. Mm. And if that is the case, maybe there's something that we can do which can stabilize your neurons enough to help you start to form new memories or, yeah. or new skills. Uh, I think that's another cool area that we could look at. Yeah. Uh, do you know what? Sorry. I'm just going to show you this quickly just because we're talking about it. It's actually in one of the books I'm reading. I don't know if you've oh, read brilliant. Have you read this book? What, the brain? No, I haven't read it, but it looks cool. That's a proper, real cool book. Just uh, this guy going around speaking to the, the top neuroscientists just about uh, cognitive impairment and just rewiring the brain, basically. And yeah, that stuff kind of really blows my mind. I just think, you know, it's actually, it's probably quite similar to exercise when you think about it, because resistance exercise you're breaking down the muscle fibers and then they rebuild and as when we're younger we got more testosterone but then as we age you get uh, a lower amount of this hormone so you start getting muscle atrophy the new unless you're exercising you're not going to retain that muscle and as we know the, the less muscle you have the more chance you have of dying as you're older yeah it's a probably similar thing, actually, with the brain, it, isn't it? It, 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 it probably is like this. There probably is this one mechanism that we haven't even clocked yet that links all of this together. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> but yeah, I think, that's, I think that's a good analogy. I'm going to steal that and use that in the future. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, think it, I think that's definitely right. I, I think when you think about it even further, that happens with even more in your body. Think about hair and how that you know, loses its pigment and starts to become more sparse with age that's exactly the same as your muscle breaking down and not being able to rebuild it as you get older mm-hmm. yeah no. what the, yeah what what is the current uh, medication for you say in like the medication earlier it's not re, it's not really developed you said in the last what, what is it exactly that they're using there's there's not a lot at all um there are some drugs out there that look to stabilize microtubules, um, but I'm, I'm not sure if they're, I'm not sure how effective they are in humans. Or mm-hmm. I'm not even sure if they're given to humans right now. All oh, right. Um, I think that's something that has premise to it, but we'll just have to watch for that. Um, then you just have a lot of neuroprotective drugs that are just trying to reinforce your neural structures. Um, and it basically do, do, does what it says in the tin, protect the neurons. Mm. Um, I just think by the time you're showing disease when it comes to Alzheimer's, that disease has already been building up in your brain for 15 to 20 years. So it was too late. Um, they, the, the markers that we see, like, like the, the amyloid plaques and the neurofibrillary tangles and these, these smaller oligomers that, that we find and we associate with Alzheimer's, well, we also find that they're building up like years and years and years before you show your first symptom. So oh, the chances right. are that these drugs aren't going to work because you've already had severe brain atrophy and 
severe, severe like um, plaque pathogenesis throughout the brain. Um, so like maybe the better thing for us to do is to, and I think it is something that is happening a lot now, is um, early detection biomarkers. So trying to work out how we can actually spot Alzheimer's 20 years, 30 years, 40 years before. Um, so like I talked about tau and how keen it is and amyloid as well. Um, maybe these people who are developing Alzheimer's in, in later age, maybe their tau is slightly different to, to that of a normal person. And if that's the case, can we, can we interrogate that tau from like a, a, a CSF or a plasma sample? Mm. Um, can we like ampl amplify that and then check whether that is capable of forming diseased conformers? Um, I think, I think that's something that's really cool. Uh, it's something a lot of, that's a lot of work going towards it in the Alzheimer's field right now is like early detection. Cool. So like an early biomarker you could measure in some, well, it's, it's quite similar to, uh, I guess a lot of people know they can, they can find out if they're more, uh, so especially females, they can find out they're more susceptible to breast cancer though. They can see exactly if they the same, yeah. carry the gene. Okay. So one thing they have started developing is um, using PET tracers. So, you know, PET scans, the right. positron, the tomography. Um, developing traces that you can that you can inject um that will attach on to these like disease related tau and amyloid plaques and then you can view live in their brain whether they got build-ups of these um i literally read a paper on this yesterday actually it, it came out i think it came out 2020 so last year um and they were using they were using these new traces that they developed and then they were looking at healthy individuals at um, like young age and old age and with Alzheimer's patients. And you could see in the Alzheimer's brain, it was just the, like with the PET graph, it's like black and white. And then it's yellow, green, all the way up to red, increasing in like density of whatever you're looking at. Um, and these, like the entire brain was just red. Like it's just full of, um, tau pathology and amyloid plaques um, but the, interestingly the older individuals who didn't have Alzheimer's also had like a a large amount of that in them as well um, so yeah may, maybe it is that <sighs> it's, it's the same but blows my mind stuff like that. it's, it's quite cool I think that's something else I'd like to do in the future is biomarker synthesis or like creating those protocols and then also like the live human imaging i think that's awesome right. like p like their their ability to to read these these scans and flawlessly pick out different areas and mm -hmm. what's happening but even though i'm a neuroscientist like that 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 like baffles my mind how they can do that as well yeah it's it's crazy with the the different colors and stuff then is it like a is it an immunostaining technique or immune histochemistry so. Yeah, yeah, it's it's basically like uh, it's just an immuno technique. Um, yeah. So the one I was looking at yesterday, I can't remember what the tracer was called. There was one called PIB, and mm. it's just a tracer that attaches onto amyloid plaque, and then the other one attaches to tau. But so when we get when we get these tau tangles in in Alzheimer's, they for some reason seem to be like highly phosphorylated. So what you can do is you can just you can you can either target phosphor like phosphor groups 
although that isn't the best thing to do because other things have have that in them or you can sort of attack these like phosphorylated like epitopes um so it's so it's quite easy to actually pick tau out as long as we've got like the the screening technology to do it but yeah i I think maybe we need to categorize the different types of tau and how they appear in different people a bit better before we really get onto the biomarkers because it's all good being able to detect something but you also need to be able to relay that back so you're like oh i found tau in this shape or is this does this mean that they're more likely to have alzheimer's or not so we i think we need to work that out as well but with the progression on this could be a thing in within five ten years time where you could literally from a blood would it be a blood biomarker would it i I think yeah blood i I mean it's got to be blood like what they do a lot right now with the cerebrospinal fluid but that's like high so you know you'll know that's so invasive yeah nobody's going to go into the doctor to their gp to get a lumbar puncture to find out they're going to get alzheimer's i'd just rather get alzheimer's you know someone sticking a needle in my spinal cord (laughs) (laughs) Um, so i think yeah blood serum has got to be the way it's going um and i actually i know people working on this so i I, like i probably can't speak about it because it's no no that's fine stuff they're doing but i know people who are working on that and i think it's really cool yeah it's crazy and even the thing you were just saying earlier just about probably this is all probably actually starting 30 40 years before it's not when you actually find out i don't know if that's fair to say actually but what i'm trying to say is when you get diagnosed with alzheimer's at 70 80 years old would you say that's more of a result from something from 30 years ago or well, the development over the thirty years. Oh, definitely, yeah. It is. That's that. That's, that's definitely something that's been building up for years and years. You know, we have cases of like familial Alzheimer's, where you basically, you know, if, if your your mum or your nan had familial Alzheimer's and they pull that gene out, there's a good chance that you're going to have it as well. Um, but and a sort of like rapid onset Alzheimer's which happens like very quickly. This is when you hear cases of people in the thirties and forties having Alzheimer's, but that's all, that's all related to mute, to genetics. Um, that's like, you know, that must be below 5% of, co- of cases of Alzheimer's in total. Uh, the other 95%, they're definitely building up from, but I, I think I can say that with conviction that they're building up at least 10 years before. It's not like, okay. it's not like with cancer that you, you might start to get that, that like cancer growing or some like metastatic growth and then within like i don't know six months or whatever you could start getting symptomatic it's probably quicker than that i don't know this is years and years and decades before which 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 like you're right it's probably something that maybe their way of life or their lifestyle or it could it's probably a combination of lifestyle and the genetic lottery like even though it's not a specific mutation that's causing them to have Alzheimer's, but you might have like 50 mutations that all make you more susceptible. Mm. And if you're also living an unhealthy lifestyle at the same time, yeah. well, you know, you're just, you're, you're going to, you're going to be unlucky. Yeah. I'd love to see if there's like massive links between uh, high fat diets, smoking, maybe. I don't know if that's. Yeah, probably. Um, yeah, I mean, especially probably with vascular dementia as well. Mm. I reckon smoking, smoking would be. 
um, stuff like don't know how like cognitive cognitively challenging is your job so I don't know whether they like compare for instance for instance comparing academics to like I'm trying to think of like a horrible mundane job without offending someone um, <laughs> I don't know you, you know, know something you know <laughs> you watch grass grow for your entire life right <laughs> but I don't know whether they're being link with the people who are challenging themselves from like school all the way up until they retire would that relate to a change in your susceptibility to alzheimer's i think there's but like everything you've asked me today is just pure speculation i haven't been able to answer anything hard and it's probably because you know I'm, maybe i'm not that good of a scientist <laughs> but um, no, it's so not I, just, I just don't think we i just don't think the knowledge is there right now you know what i think it's hard when it comes to topics like this, especially as researchers like you and I, when we, we don't normally say, we normally say a lot, we don't fully understand it, but to us not fully understanding it doesn't mean we don't know nothing at all. It's just that for us to understand something, it means right then a massive thesis on it. That's when we, like, I wouldn't say I fully understand my research project until I get to the end. That's, and most of the interviews I've been doing, I've normally been sticking to the actual project, but I think because I'm so interested in neuroscience anyway, and I think it fascinates so many people and it needs to be heard of. I just had to, I just had to ask all them type of questions, but no, I think yeah, no, it's cool. It's getting me to think as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But no, honestly, some of the questions you've come up with, is, it's really like got me thinking like, it's just, yeah, crazy. You've definitely. Yeah. Even the questions that you've been prodding, it's been making me link things in my head. Ah, actually... oh, you know that's cool. I'm gonna go look at that tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. You've uh, you've definitely people are gonna get excited about this. So no, I really appreciate the uh, coming on and stuff. Would you, do you think you'd be able to actually note some papers for me that I could put in the description? Yeah, yeah. Do you want me to? I send you some afterwards. Yeah. I just feel the tie you're on about. It's not tie receptors, is it? No. No, that's fine. Only because tie receptors, they're in the vasculature as well. I know a bit about endothelial cells, uh, a little bit about the brain, only because I use it in the vasculature. So I'm aware of like the transcription factor, uh, NRF2, NF kappa pathway, and I know that they're in the endothelial within the. But one of the other things I work with is. Oh, one of the labs in the lab is tie receptors. And when you said tie, then it just made me think, Oh, is that potentially, sorry, I just rambled on then. <laughs> <laughs> One of the other things as well, you're going to, is it Greece? You said you're going. Yeah. Yeah. I sh should be going to Athens in, I don't know, like my second year, um, yeah. to, to the Alexander Fleming Institute. Um, which I, I can't, I can't wait for that. It's going to be sick. Be it's awesome. just so COVID's, you know, fucked off by then. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Cool. No, I've taken up a lot of your time anyway, but no, Brad, thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast. I know we haven't spoken too much about what it's like being a PhD student, but is there any recommendations you would give to someone who wants to study a PhD and for people who are actually studying a PhD as well? Um, yeah. So for people who want, who are like prospective PhD student, the number one thing is try and find out who your PI is. And I don't mean like, obviously you're going to know their net, what their name is. Um, 
and you're going to know who they are, but try and work out how they operate and sort of have more than a five minute conversation with them mm-hmm. because this, your supervisor basically holds your project in the palm of their hand and they're so integral to what you do. You need to make sure that you're willing to work with them for like four years from start to finish. I think a good way to do this is if you can try and contact and reach out to some people in their group. And if you can do that, you can ask them some of the questions you wouldn't ask straight to their face. Like, you know, what are they like day to day? How much do they help you in the lab? Do they baby you? Cause I, I know some people really enjoy it or they like having their supervisor in the lab every single day and helping them along. But then some other people hate that and they don't want to be babied. They just want to get on with it. And they just want to have that guidance when they, when they need it, when they ask for it. Um, also when you just don't be discouraged when you're applying, you're going to get rejections. It's just going to happen. I think, I think most of the people I spoke to, they apply to 15 to 20 mm. projects. So just keep on cracking at it. And then I think, think one last thing for that is um, when you're writing like your personal statement, you need to show them it's not just putting down your lab experience and lose it like incredible like internships that you've done like cool that's really good experience but you need to show them how you're going to help them out Mm. and how you're going to integrate into their group because they're they're just the same as you they're also thinking can i work with this person for four years yeah so it's all good having that all down on paper but if you come across as like maybe is and it's quite difficult some people maybe you're not as good as speak you're not as good at speaking to people or you know that that's fine but you need to come come along come sort of approachable i suppose that's what i was trying to get at you need to be approachable to them and they need to think that they can work with you so that needs to come across in your interview and in your personal statement beforehand and then i think for people who are already on projects i mean yeah i'm only a first year so a lot of people listening to this probably have more experience than me anyway but i think the number one thing that's helped me so far is sort of like just organization i think it's maybe underrated by some people Mm. but just organizing my days and my weeks and making sure that i'm just recording everything i'm doing has helped me out so much so like everything that i've done so far has gone really wrong so i don't have any data i know i'm only a couple months in so that's fine but i've because i've recorded everything i've done and all the steps and everything like in detail instead of guessing what's gone wrong i've just been being able to go back over my documents, look okay. what's happened. I'm like, ah, oh, you know, that's what I screwed up. Or this is what I should do to maybe not screw up in the future. So I think, yeah, just organizing and, and noting everything down. And then uh, maybe just try not being too hard on yourself. And I know that's quite hard to do right now because we're not allowed to go out and socialize. So sort of the only thing that we can do is work or watch Netflix, right? Yeah. So it's a lot of people are just working 24 seven. Yeah. Just give yourself a break, go outside, take a walk, take a day off. I think people were especially scared of taking days off in the middle of the week. I'm like, well, if you've just worked 21 days in a row, including weekends, have your Wednesday off, you know, like just, just take it easy, come up with a hobby or something to challenge you, challenge you outside of, outside of your work as well, which is what I always try to do. I'm always trying to come up with something, crazy that i can work towards outside of academia we do an ultra marathon don't you? <laughs> yeah yeah like literally gone from 
powerlifting and being like fat but slightly strong to wanting to run an ultra marathon so I'm like what can I do to just keep myself ticking over and challenging myself um, and I think it's someone that's always helped me not just with my PhD but with everything else like even if I'm stressed I'm still saying I'm still sort of staying sane because yeah. I'm doing these things to keep keep myself moving along definitely not I think it's so important I'm trying to get as many hobbies as I can good let's just see if there's oh let's just have a look if there's any questions so I'll just get the internet back on oh okay um has there been any work looking at methylums of healthy aging neurons if so, what's known about possible changes to DNA patterns? Uh, what are the genes linked to, etc.? What they're talking about methylation. Yeah. Uh, any work looking at methylomes of healthy aging neurons? If so, what possible changes to DNA patterns? I don't know. <laughs> Nothing that I've read. Read. Um, I think if you if you're talking about DNA, I don't know. I focus more on post translate yeah, post translational modifications. It's something big that I look at. So I suppose I'm looking less at like the raw genetics and more of what can happen later on. Um so yeah, I, I don't know if I could I couldn't answer that question with any with that's any like, um convict. <laughs> yeah, that's difficult because like you said, everything you're doing is post morphulations in it so it's yes. nothing to do with the pre long like after. the rna it's long after it's way after that isn't it yeah yeah long after that no way can we live forever <laughs> can <laughs> no, we live you forever? watch mate you <laughs> yeah we can live forever <laughs> why not immortal what do you think about that can we I, I, <laughs> I don't know i think i think we can definitely increase our length of life and I think in our lifetimes, in our research cycle, <laughs> uh, I think we could definitely, that the community can come towards adding more quality age onto the end of people's lives. But I don't, I, yeah, I don't think we can live forever. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. I, don't think, I don't think I'd want to either. I think that'd be tedious. Yeah, that would be hard. But I have seen, yeah, I can't remember where it was now, but like people were talking about, oh, one day we're going to live forever. I was thinking, Pfft. <laughs> no, I don't know. We're too far away from that, though. Anyway, wouldn't we? Uh, yeah, to, like yeah, find absolutely. like a drag or There's just yeah. no way, isn't it? Too far away. Well, the thing is, like, you could maybe improve the stability of neurons over a life, over mm. a longer life. But then you've got to find a way of keeping the entire system healthy for like. It's just impossible. I don't think. It, maybe like the only thing you could do with that is that would all have to be. DNA related and like basically playing God with creating humans. I think that's the only way you could ever reach anything close to it. Yeah. I watched, um, I don't know if you've seen it. It was a program on oh, Netflix, I think with the, the child that unfortunately she died of cancer and the, the uh, Chinese parents or Japanese, sorry, decided to freeze her. Oh really? Jesus. Yeah, did you? I'm guessing you haven't I, seen that. I haven't seen it, but I know what you're talking about. It was quite. He's a scientist. Sorry, you saying? It was, sorry, I was just saying there was something in the news about that the other day. Not about that specifically, but about right. a company I think based in the UK who were offering it. Oh wow! It's it's cool, but I think it's pretty scary as well. Yeah, 
Um, but to be fair, the the actual parents, the dad, very smart. He's a scientist, has his own lab. Uh, even his son now is a scientist. So it weren't as if it was through a, a massive company. It was in America actually. They sent the boarding stuff, but they were speaking to a neuroscientist then, and he was saying to do with the way they they dry out the brain or something. Apparently, there right. needs to be like a lot of fluid in the brain, otherwise. Even if you preserve it, because the whole point of the freezing is, is so that in thirty years' time, when they do discover it, they'll be able to bring her back. That's what the the theory is. But this neuroscientist just came on and was like, "No, you can't," because the way they drain the brain out or something. Yeah, I reckon. I reckon you would just do like irreparable damage to the the like the structure of the brain. Right. Even on like not even like neuron to neuron like. I don't know if you've ever held a brain. Um, no, I haven't. So it's a pretty weird thing to ask a non-neuroscientist. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's literally like a bit of jelly. It's, oh, it's, right. got, it's, it's got no, it's got no proper structure to it. Right. So I reckon if you're freezing that, you're gonna, yeah, cause like serious damage to it. Cool. Last like, question. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, you saying? No, 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 I was just yeah. thinking. <laughs> yeah, I know, it's getting me thinking all this. So another question. Uh, I think this is before modification. Just saying, would slowing the aging process have something to do with telomeres? Or do you yeah. think that the root is exhausted and roots, other roots should be looked at? So telomeres is the thing that's on it's the coming, end. Ca- coming from a genetic point of view again. again. Yeah. Uh, yeah, again, I don't see why it would be because um, everything that we're looking at here is is like these these are neurons that have been here for, for forever already so i'm not sure how that's going to make much difference the, the only thing with with uh microtubules is they are they're like created from like telomere structures and they then propagate up the axon after that to, to cause structure all right so maybe there is something that we could do there with them. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Uh, it's interesting, though. Yeah, no, definitely. Cool. That's the main questions. So, uh, but yeah, Brad, thank you so much. No, brilliant. Yeah, cheers for having me on. I, 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 I said to you last week, when I started my page in, in September or October, whatever, one of the things I wanted to do was get on a podcast. Mm-hmm. So you, uh, you helped me realize my dream. <laughs> <laughs> No, I've really enjoyed it. I've really enjoyed it. No, thanks. Cheers, mate. Brilliant. Cheers. Hi, everyone. Hope you all enjoyed and I will see you all next time.